You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome to the place debate. Thank you, all you resilient people, for making it out on such um, terrible weather. Uh, I'd like to start um, by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands, the Wurundjeri. Um, I feel like uh, there's a habit in this kind of game, and particularly when it's related to property, to make that a very tokenistic acknowledgement. Um, I had the privilege of going to Margaret River last week and um, had a welcome to country and smoking ceremony with um, the local elder there. And it was fascinating because um, he had the unenviable task of speaking to Perth's development community, who are pretty kind of scary... <laughs> group of guys, really. Um, and what struck me when he was talking about um, the Aboriginal people of that particular area and how they saw their relationship to the land and how they saw their relationship to each other was that their strategy for living in place, for connection to place, for harmony between people and land um, is remarkable, you know. And I think with cities, we're constantly looking at you know, what's emerging at the fringes of the future and technology and all of these kind of futuristic ways of thinking about how we live together. But actually, we have this incredible untapped resource, in my opinion, uh, which is our Aboriginal culture. And I would really hope that in the future of developing and growing our cities, uh, we can see more of that integrated in a meaningful way. Um, it would be a really, really great thing for us to do. Um, I, I'm Barry Barton, by the way. I'm the co-founder of Right Angle Studio with my brother Chris, who's no doubt hiding up the back. He is hiding up the back. He always does. <laughs> um, uh, we started this business in Melbourne. We're a Melbourne business, um, 15 years old this year. Um, and we started with a pretty simple purpose, which was to try and understand and improve life in cities. Um, and the way that that has actually been delivered has changed shape over time. So we started with this kind of coolsy city guide called 3000, which is a, Rachel worked on that, uh, which was a nice little guide to what was going on in inner city Melbourne. And then uh, we spun rooftop cinema out of that and eventually started working as consultants to property developers because we realized that while we could kind of go about our own startup businesses and try and change what people could do in the city, uh, we were limited in terms of our resources and our money. And there were some really interesting people in a government and in a development who were making huge decisions about how cities grew and what they would become and what they would offer people. So we started accidentally working as consultants. And I think because we were amateurs, really, you know, none of us had studied development, thankfully. Um, you know, we, we really got positioned as the people that would help with the inner city things. So all of our projects were all about the CBD and they were all basically for people in their early 20s who looked like they were in Monocle magazine. And at a certain point in time, um, that just got really boring for us. Um, we thought about that enough and we needed some kind of intellectual expansion and we started speaking to some clients about the work that they weren't just doing in urban areas but in suburban areas. And it was a really interesting point in time for Right Angle because I think we realized how snobbish we'd been um, and how we'd thought that the way that the city operates and the people who live in like Fitzroy are the only people that kind of get lifestyle right was actually really a, a very um, narrow-minded point of view. And in working in places like Caroline Springs, we were really kind of opened up, um, not just to the challenges of the suburbs, but the beauty of them and the, and the the meaning of other people's lives that aren't in, you know, the postcodes that are just around the CBD. And so this kind of tension between how we live in urban areas or the city 
and how we live in suburban areas is something which we explore all the time. And it's why we wanted to actually have this debate tonight. Um, because one of the things that we've learned a lot working in, in property and kind of city affairs is that um, unfortunately, uh, not just as an industry, but as a group of people, as citizens as well, we're not really good at having constructive debates anymore. I'm not sure if it's a kind of washout from being too politically correct or that we get shamed on social media really easily if we express strong opinions or whatever the reason for it is. There doesn't seem to be enough healthy debate, respectful debate about what kind of places we're creating and therefore what kind of people we come as a, become as a result of them. So we wanted to, to bring that to the, the forum, to the pavilion here tonight to actually create a debate old school style, like literally, like the old debates you used to have to endure at school. Um, and we have, uh, in old school style, two teams, uh, the pro-city team, the affirmative team, and the suburban team on the, on the left. Um, the, the topic is that the suburbs are no place to raise a child, uh, which was actually a really kind of cute slogan we saw in an advertising campaign for some very fancy apartments in Toronto, which is pretty much like Melbourne and Sydney in the sense that, you know, the CBD scene is very desirable and people in the city think poorly of people in the suburbs and they've got the same kind of tension at play. Um, so we really want to get to the bottom of that debate um, to try and understand these different points of view about the beauty and the horror and the joys and the challenges of living both in the city and in the suburbs. Um, I'm going to introduce the speakers uh, one by one as they come up for their actual um, talks rather than give you a, a five-minute kind of rundown. But we have um, Harriet, uh, James, Mathieu, we have Joe, Rachel and Stephen. I'll explain where they all come from, but we've chosen them from different areas. They're not all um, sustainability nerds or architects or property nerds. It's a nice kind of cross-section. And they're each going to get six minutes or so to talk. Um, I think at the end of it, we're going to have like a very unscientific way of choosing a winner and a loser. Um, it'll probably just be a show of hands. And um, Simon, who works for us, just told me that when he was a kid, he used to count heads of cattle on a farm. And he's really good at understanding numbers at a glance. So you can be the judge. <laughs> I told you it was unscientific. Um, and we would really love some, some questions and some observations from the audiences as well. Um, so please, as things are going along, um, maybe don't heckle, but keep your thoughts and, um, and bring them up at the end because we really would like some debate. So I um, want to get straight into it and introduce um, Harriet, Harriet Grumman, who's our first speaker. Um, I don't want to be ageist, but she's clearly the youngest person here. Um, and we wanted that because, you know, the proposition that the suburbs are no place to raise a child really um, by definition means that we should have someone who is recently a child involved in the debate. So Harriet only finished school last year, um, but she's at Melbourne Uni doing an arts degree now. Um, I've, to I've been told that she's horrifyingly confident. Uh, she's also told me that she has a, has a seven minute speech, not a six minute speech. So she doesn't get a second bell, just one bell for Harriet. Oh, you've got the bell. Okay, great. Um, and, and it's just a real delight that, um, you know, we put a call out there to try and encourage um, some people to get involved in this debate, people that we didn't know. And we wanted young people. And, you know, I think like the Bernard Saltz and all the baby boomers of the world will tell you that young people are really lazy and um, entitled and they don't really care about things and they're all really selfish. And it's patently untrue. And I think Harriet's about to prove that to us and hopefully prove that city living is a good thing too. So welcome, Harriet. Thank you, Barry, for your kind introduction. So, good evening, everyone. I'm Harriet. I'm an 18-year-old student and one of the 4.6 million Australians in Gen Z. 
those roughly between the ages of 8 and 22 who are tasked with shaping the cities of our future. I'm here tonight to give you a window into my world, a recent child's view on childhood. But before I do, I'd like to also extend upon the acknowledgement of this place where we meet tonight and bring us together to contemplate the wisdom long spoken by Indigenous people and translated here. We are all just visitors to this time, this place. We are just passing through. Our purpose here is to observe, to learn, to grow, to love, and then we return home. Home, the place of our making, our shaping, our raising, our rearing, the place that confines us, defines us. Home, a place you grow up wanting to leave and grow old wanting to get back to. I'd like to ask you all, where did you grow up? What streets or suburbs or cities were you raised in? And when you think of that place, what childhood memories and moments fill your mind? As for myself, I'd called 11 different houses home by the time I was 10. Some as far from the city as Aubrey and Warrnambool, others as close as Richmond and Northcote. So my sense of place and raising was a sort of lovely broken line. And for the most part, I spent my formative years in inner urban areas rather than suburban. So I'm well placed as the first speaker of this team tonight, as I'll be arguing that the suburbs are no place to raise a child. Before I get into it, I think it's important to think about what constitutes a suburb versus an urban area or a city in the first place. There are plenty of conflicting definitions on the subject and no strict cutoffs or guidelines for what is considered suburban versus urban. For example, if you're looking at a map, there's no geographical line to make a distinction between the two. Siri doesn't just send you an alert once you've crossed into suburbia. And really, the line between urban and suburban is pretty blurry at best. The general consensus, however, is that urban or inner city areas have a higher population density than the suburbs, are usually very developed and have a greater proportion of structures such as houses, commercial buildings, roads, bridges and railways. Formally, Australia often classifies urban areas as those with a population density of 200 or more individuals per square kilometre. Informally, some consider the area designated as Melbourne City just anywhere that has a tram line, a 7-Eleven and a cafe with smashed avo on the menu. For the purpose of this debate, though, I'll be adopting the more formal definition. I'd also love to point out, uh, and I'm willing to bet, that I was the most recent child out of our speakers here tonight, as Barry has already mentioned. And given we're debating whether the suburbs are the best place to raise a child, I'd say this gives me a bit of a unique vantage point. So I said earlier that I've lived in lots of places, but when I think of my childhood, my favourite place of raising was by far the light-filled mid-century house where I spent my last eight years. It was in an inner urban area, what I would call a sort of sweet spot for city living, with green space, bustling cafes, a mixed community and pretty much everything I needed within 20 minutes of home. This close proximity of everything I needed was what I loved so much about the area. I could walk to school in 15, ride to my mates in five and go to the gym in even less. I could jump on a tram or train on my street, a bus around the corner, and within half an hour I had easy access to the CBD and the breadth of Melbourne's galleries, theatres and restaurants. As well as having everything I needed within such a short radius, 
Growing up in an urban gave me the freedom to explore the city as I grew my independence. If my friends and I caught wind of a cool event like White Night, a protest, or maybe even this debate, all we had to do was jump on a tram and we were there. Growing up surrounded by the hustle and bustle of the city streets and having to navigate public transport was a huge growth factor for me. And it instilled in me a level of confidence and autonomy that I think is far more difficult to foster in a child living in the suburbs. But the key factor for me was this notion of an inner urban sweet spot. The duality of home being a sanctuary of space and quiet while simultaneously offering such easy access to the city's chaos and vibrancy. After a full day's immersion in the cultural dynamism of the city streets, I could come home to a sanctuary where I could lie in the sun in my backyard, take our dog for a walk to the huge green park 10 minutes away, and live in a two-story house with our family of six. That place shaped me in so many ways. My experiences and emotions and memories were laid down in those streets and walls. It makes me think about how I would raise my own children if I were ever to have them. I'm by no means a professional in urban development and planning. However, I do have some hopes and ideas for what our future cities will look like. It's no question that they'll look quite dif different from today's, especially as we navigate overpopulation, the climate crisis, and the rise of technology, including AI and autonomous vehicles. But it's my hope that our cities will both remain and continue to grow into the perfect environment for raising children. I see future cities that are greener, cleaner, and serviced by sustainable transport options to support a rapidly growing urban population. I imagine more sky gardens and solar panels and less cars on the road. I want to see more sunlight and open spaces, less grey concrete slabs and shadows, and I want to see humans doing work that matters. I hope the children of the future are raised in inner urban areas so they're able to grow, learn and thrive in a diverse community in close proximity to the city, whilst also enjoying the benefits of having room to breathe on green grass under a blue sky, not constantly surrounded by skyscrapers, but with the choice to be, only a short commute away if they so desire. As Jackie Kennedy said, you have only one, ra you have only one chance to raise your child. And I say, make it in urban. Thank you. Harry, thanks so much. And sorry I said you were 19 when you're only 18. How embarrassing. It <laughs> <laughs> was really beautiful, poetic. Um, our next speaker and first speaker for the suburbs is Joe Hook, who is a friend and a business coach and um, a person who provides guidance to individuals and small businesses right across Melbourne. Um, she is an incredible thinker and communicator and just has a real kind of soft confidence that I think she's about to bring to the, uh, the, the argument for the suburbs. So welcome, Joe. Thanks, Barry. That, that's um, very comforting to have a soft confidence. It may not come to the, to the bar today. Um, thanks, Harriet. That was an amazing opening. And what a, what a person to follow. And uh, I have to say I'm a little bit nervous. But good evening, everybody. Before I start, um, I just want to know a show of hands. Who was raised in the suburbs? Like, hi. Hi and proud. So, yeah, I'm just interested, Harriet. Because <laughs> um, 
everything Harriet said, I was like totally engrossed thinking, yes, yes, we need her on our team. She's a suburb girl. So it sort of comes down to, um, I suppose, uh, a slight um, difference of opinion as to the borders of or, or, or the definition of what a suburb is. Um, so I suppose I'll start with the that contentious statement that Bruce Mao has made on the billboard that's the reason we're here tonight. The suburbs is no place to raise a child. Clearly, I disagree. Um, and by the way, it was an advertising um, slogan and you have to doubt the intentions of that, but I actually read a little bit about Bruce and think it was probably not just to sell property, it was probably a ploy to get us to have this very debate tonight and to be start, think, start thinking about um, not just the urban or suburban environment, but the more important topic of how do we raise happy children. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to debate. To debate. I have to say I'm so nervous though. I'm so used to having conversations. Um, and I love having really interesting conversations, but the fact that this is has a structure that I actually haven't been a part of for so long, like a lot longer <laughs> than Harriet. Um, yeah, it made me, I felt like I was cramming for an exam this week. And um, so, so and, and also reminiscing a lot about what what is a suburb to me. And it was quite interesting because I am uh, live in Fitzroy and have done for um, 15 years and prior to that, Richmond. So I've sort of thought of myself as an inner city person for a lot of my adult life. And um, sort of being put on the suburbs team, I thought, oh, dad, got the wrong side. I, I really know that bit. Um, but actually reflected, and I'm a child of the suburbs. Uh, like Harriet, I was raised in 21 suburbs. So I had lots of moving around and um, lots of variety of suburbs. But, um, and I have to say, I'm the happy product of a, of a suburban upbringing. So, I'm going to, I suppose it could be boring and just say the definition of a suburb, just to get it straight for the rest of the debate, is um, a suburb in Australia is defined as a mixed-use or residential area existing either as part of a city or urban area or as a separate residential community with commuting distance of the city. So, I mean, we sort of, when we all put our hands up, we sort of know that's probably the checklist that we went through. Um, Caulfield is, is a suburb and Fitzroy is a suburb. So I actually live in an inner city suburb. Um, I don't think of it as inner urban, but it's semantics. We have inner suburbs, we have outer suburbs. I mean, we just have suburbs. And I think we sort of have a shared understanding of, of what we're talking about when that statement was made. It was a bit of a, um, it was a bit of a, a bit of snobbery, I think, in that comment that uh, the suburbs are no place to raise a kid because we do have this sort of, um, feeling that inner city living is more sophisticated, more cultured, and we've got it down pat. And the burbs are sort of behind the eight ball, boring, dull, soulless. And yet it raised the people that came to this discussion. A lot of you here are from the burbs. So I have to say, I think I take that as a really good statement. Uh, so I'm not going to like bore you with the other bits of um, the definition of a suburb. Regardless of how we define the suburbs, urban or suburban, we all know that things need to change and um, in the way that we design places for people to live. So that's really what we're going to be arguing about. What are, best, what are the best places for people to live and what, uh, what brings about happy and content 
human beings. So it isn't a debate about architecture or place design, which I think we could easily stray into. Um, it's about the best place to raise a child. So we'll be presenting what we know about what children need to grow as healthy, happy, contributing humans. Can you hear my values, like contributing humans? Taking into account whether that be in the physical environment or really importantly, in their inner environment. And how does where they live shape how they respond to the world and the human beings they grow up and evolve to become. We'll talk about how children need space to move, clean air to breathe, and how they have a right to feel safe and to play. And we'll consider the impact of a family's financial stress on the health and well-being of a child and acknowledge the role of affordable housing and living within that context. We'll remember what it was to be a child and what mattered to us and bring that into the conversation. And I can assure you, I was a, a child a lot longer ago than Harriet. So my memory, I'm sure my team... Okay, fine. So I'm going to go really, really quickly through the fact that I grew up in lots of suburbs. And the thing that um, I remember most is the freedom to make mistakes, fall down, have lots of clean air and open space to explore, but also to be independent and to be left to our own devices to goof, actually, and to get scared. And that's something that I think is really lacking in children's upbringing, the, the, um, an environment where they can actually test their boundaries and get the feeling of what it's like to reach their boundaries. So my childhood... After that ding, I'm not going to tell you the details of my childhood, but I will say that um, all of the experiences growing up in the suburbs developed the qualities that I think are good for physical and mental health. We grew independently, we learned how to problem solve on our own and with others, and how to build lasting and happy relationships, as well as cubby houses. We felt connected to our neighbourhood and our neighbours, and we felt safe. The suburbs that I live, lived in weren't always beautifully designed, but they were happy places to live. And growing up in the suburbs nurtured in me a desire to explore other people's backyards and to go beyond my own. And that sort of stood me as a grown-up child instead because I've explored the world because of that. So I now live in Fitzroy, as I said, and despite having a really tight group of neighbours and having a really uh, great access to things that are wonderful, that I truly value... Um, it isn't as safe, and the kids that live in our street don't play on the streets. So I'm looking forward to hearing more arguments from our fellow debaters about in defence of raising a child in the city. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, Mathieu Bush is a clinician and a design thinker who co-directs the RMIT Health Transformation Lab which is an anti-disciplinary lab that dabbles in cybernetics, salutogenic and salutotechnical design. Fancy. Um, <laughs> they might sound how tech, but not all of his health solutions are. So he actually just ran me through his One Good Street initiative, uh, which is an amazing organisation that's bringing communities together to reduce social isolation amongst the elderly. Uh, really looking forward to your talk. But just before you start, I'm just wondering if you poor guys sitting in the concrete want to sit on benches instead. We can arrange this. You're happy? Yes? No? You're happy? Oh, there's, there's a movement. See, it just takes one, and then everyone. <laughs> okay. All right, welcome. Then let's hear it from Mathieu. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Loneliness and social isolation. 
So I visited a woman who is na who names Vera. She turned 101. She was in a suburb, and we were the only people that visited her. Think about what it's like to live alone all day. What's it like to live alone all week? So our suburbs can be very lonely places. I founded One Good Street because I saw every single day as a clinician working in the community, people who had no one in their lives. And my concern was that we had acres and acres of solitude, that loneliness and social isolation manifested itself in a poverty of conversation. And what I found in cities was more opportunities to talk, more opportunities to collide with people that look the same, more opportunities for incidental neighbouring. I founded One Good Street. We have a thousand people on our Facebook group. We actively look after people in our street who are older. An 84-year-old GP, when he falls out of bed, our entire street get up at four in the morning and put him back. We save an ambulance fee. We save the ED presentation. This all happens naturally and organically because we're clustered together. We're united to make a less lonely street we want to be a good, one good street. I designed a wearable. It's the first wearable in the world to detect loneliness. It counts the number of words that people speak. When it drops below a threshold, it sends an SMS off to family, friends, volunteers, neighbours. The biggest uptake has been in the city, where neighbours want to make their places better streets, better places to live, where social capital runs through thick and thin, thick and fast. There's a thick market of social activity in streets, and there is in the suburbs, but definitely more in, in, in the inner city through our use of Facebook groups. So who's on the Karma Network here, or have heard of the Karma Network? Do you know the Karma Network has 80,000 members? Last week, a nurse contacted the Karma Network and said, hey, I just met an 87-year-old who's been robbed. And it took three hours to raise $600 and fill her house full of everything she needed. That's the power of community. That's the power of community united on a vision to make our cities less lonely. So my take on this debate is what's the loneliest kind of place to live? Why is loneliness important? If you're chronically isolated and lonely, you're a 27 percent increased risk of dying. If you're isolated and lonely, you'll visit the GP, the emergency department, 44% more than your peers. It costs a lot of money to be lonely. Researchers have equated loneliness and social isolation as being equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. There's an epidemic of loneliness in our suburbs. By 2030, there will be 3.2 million women living alone who are 80 years of and over. It's an epidemic of silence. That's why when I designed the wearable, we called it CatPin, conversation is therapy. Conversations can make a really big difference in people's lives. You know that by the, the, the energy you get from talking to someone and then walking away. Conversation's incredibly important. There was a research project that looked at women at risk of postnatal depression and it showed that seven conversations a day are protective. Cities create more opportunities for conversation because we're designed for social collision. I bumped into like four people on the tram. 
I got squashed on the tram. I was able to smile on the tram. It is the ability to have incidental neighbouring, this kind of social collision that happens where maybe there's an exchange of humanity and that matters for people that are lonely. It really matters for people that are isolated. So that's why I encourage, uh, uh, from, from our perspective, um, a lens on a city, uh, in, instead of being a, a group of people that aren't connected, to demonstrate how incredibly connected cities can be and especially enabled through technology like wearables that detect loneliness, like Facebook groups where anyone can post something and the neighbourhood can jump in and help. I think in a, in a city we have big conversations, lots of opportunities for conversations, and that, that creates less lonely spaces for children. I have 12 biological children, all through sperm donation, who are probably scattered all throughout Victoria, <laughs> actually probably all in Northgate for a range of reasons, <clears throat> but they might be everywhere. What I did was I donated sperm so that I would have a social life when I'm 56, um, because they'll all come knocking and I've got to teach them about pin and wire and whiskey. Um, so I hope that, my hope for them is that they don't have lonely upbringings, that there's plenty of opportunities to talk. And it's with that connection of talking that they can grow and evolve and manage their mental health and build resilience. And I'll leave you with this thought that when you leave here, there's all these opportunities to collide with people. And it's when we collide, we can share our humanity. And that happens in cities. Thank you so much. Um, our second speaker for the suburbs, Rachel Elliott-Jones, who's a curator for Malong Globe, which we've worked out is a company that has more offices than staff. <laughs> um, Rachel's based in London primarily, but she um, travels around the world, particularly to Greece and down here to Australia, where Malong Globe doing some really interesting work. Uh, they've brought out Francesca Carreri for a series of events at Melbourne Design Festival, or Melbourne Design Week, excuse me. Uh, and Rachel has always been a really um, fasc fascinated person. She's always been a conscientious observer of cities and a real participant in their cultural life. So we're really um, privileged and happy to have you here, Rachel. Thank you, Barry. And thanks to all you kind people for coming up tonight. So um, the topic for our debate is that the suburbs are no place to raise a child, but that's a statement that we refute, kind of. So Joe has already kind of stated the complexities around that statement, and I think all of us here embody that complexity. And just to give you a bit of background about where I grew up, and I thought Barry was going to mention this because I know he had inside information about it, but I grew up in a village that had long ago been subsumed by the suburban area of a mediocre northern English city region, which is another term that is really hard to define. It's basically a city made up of lots of other small cities with villages that used to, places that used to be villages that are now suburbs. Um, but basically the city was desperately underserviced, impoverished, flailing after the decline of the chemical plant that used to provide employment, full of empty shops, and today, for many of those reasons, ground zero of the Brexit decision in England, and so nowhere I'd like to live, then or now, and nothing like Melbourne. But I had a childhood on the outskirts of that city, and not that I can say it's idyllic, because it was under the grey skies of the north, but it was pretty great. So I picked wild blackberries on the way to school. I played with my friends in the street unsupervised. I spent our 17 degree summers on makeshift water slides in various backyards. 
Um, I had fun, I felt safe, I learned about the world and my place in it. So for me, I'm a proud product of suburbia. In a different suburb of a different city, you'll have a different story. Um, not to mention that suburbs and cities mean different things in different places. Um, but I'm here to tell you why suburbs win out. Specifically, how suburbs make better playgrounds for kids and to touch on the radical potential for suburbs to lead on climate action. So, suburbs as playgrounds. Um, places that encourage play are really important because play is paramount to children's development. It's how kids make discoveries about the world around them, their bodies and universal laws. Thanks to this kind of playtime, kids learn to problem solve, think creatively, make friends and exercise their bodies and imagination. And it's so important that it's protected by Article 31 of the Convention of the Rights of the Child. And last year, the World Health Organization released new guidelines for physical activity in children that suggest they need to sit less and play more to improve their physical and mental health and well-being. And I think to do this requires space, freedom, and a canvas for imagination. In Melbourne, space is more abundant in the suburbs. If you take the provision of green space in Melbourne, for example, the recommended per person provision in the city is 22 square metres. But just over there in Southbank, there are only around three square metres per person. And when you compare this to the average 116 square metres per person provision in the Greater Melbourne area, it's clear that access to green space is much better in the suburbs. And the quality of this green space is really important too. Um, insufficient access to sunlight can be detrimental to physical and mental well-being, especially to that of a child. And according to the Department of Health, um, more than 50% of Victorians are actually vitamin D deficient in winter. Um, and that's only really exacerbated in the city where many public parks are subject to overshadowing from increasingly taller buildings. Also, urban green spaces tend to be a more organised form of nature with limited biodiversity. It's in the suburbs where you can more readily have contact with wilderness areas. For me, it was marsh and woodlands and tadpoles and local beck. For kids in the northeastern suburbs of Melbourne, it's access to the Mary Creek Nature Corridor, one of the only places in Melbourne where plants and grasses endemic to this area still grow. So as well as better access to space, um, a greater level of freedom is available to children in the suburbs, which is often impeded in urban areas where safety and security are compromised. And I'm not refuting um, Machu's arguments around loneliness and the importance of that, but um, the social collision that might be possible for adults in the city, I think, is more possible for children in the suburbs. Um, it's particularly around that, the perceived safety of the suburbs and... I've got these statistics from the Crime Statistics Agency data for 2019, and the city of Melbourne and the inner city, inner city suburbs of Collingwood and Fitzroy are the top three areas of Melbourne with the highest crime rates in Melbourne. But the top three lowest crime rates are the outer suburbs of the Patch, Park Orchards and Ferny Creek, where the rate of crime reported there is 35 times more than, um, 35 times less than the city of Melbourne. So if you add to that the intense congestion of the city grid and you can imagine that the city is not the place where parents feel comfortable with their kids having autonomy, getting themselves to school or playing out in the street. And suburbs are also often derided for their predictability, but they can be a blank canvas for small minds to leap beyond. So for sure, J.G. Ballard um, had a quite sinister opinion of life on the city edges or life in general. But there is something in his idea that suburbs, by their very blandness, force the imagination into new areas. So environments that might seem predictable and boring to someone who spent longer in the world 
can actually be safer platforms for children to experiment, take risks and learn within. And then I kind of just wanted to touch on, this is just uh, skimming the surface of the potential, but the, the radical potential for suburbs to lead on climate action, which would, of course, make them better places to raise children well into the future. And this is important because we've already experienced the catastrophic effects of climate change, and it's only going to get worse. We need to really reassess life wherever it takes place, um, starting with trees. Um, they're windshielding, shading, re they reduce the effect of heat islands, they promote biodiversity and take carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, but where can we fit these trees in the cities? Um, the city of Melbourne is losing its trees at a rapid rate. There's 35% anticipated loss by 2040s, 63% by 2090, and the capacity to, capacity to replenish that stock is really limited, and it's the suburbs where we might be able to reforest more. The suburbs also present more roof area for photovoltaics. Um, the Clean Energy Council identifies the top performing solar as, uh, places in Australia as outer suburbs of metropolitan areas, such as Cranbourne here in Melbourne, which is, comes in ninth, ninth place. And there's also more room in the suburbs for micro-farming. Um, according to the University of Melbourne's Food Print Melbourne project, by 2050, Melbourne is predicted to house 7 to 8 million people, and 60% more food will be needed to feed these people. So a return to Australia's backyard self-sufficiency of the pre-war era is one step towards addressing this. Not to mention new suburbs can start from scratch without retrofitting sustainability measures, providing new blueprints for greener, cleaner, happier ways of living. Um, as Justin Davidson writes in New York Magazine, architects and social engineers once saw the suburbs as laboratory of the imagination, and just because mundane reality intruded is no reason to give up. In the past, here in Melbourne, we've had Robin Boyd's small home service and the game-changing work of merchant builders. And we can do this again and better if we train the gaze of innovation away from the clogged urban centres and out to the fringes. Let's not forget that the city of Melbourne used to be boring before Jan Gale stepped in. As Amanda Colson Hurley writes in Radical Suburbs, suburbia is what we make it. Thank you. Um, the next and final speaker for the city team is James Tutton. Uh, James is a friend uh, of long time. Uh, James has done probably more to change our experiences of Melbourne than, than most in this pavilion. Uh, he started Moonlight Cinema. Um, he's uh, one of the partners of Neo Metro, who are really, really great architect developers. Uh, and he was also one of the co-founders of Smiling Minds. So he's a very uh, broad thinker, has very strong opinions. I've learned that the hard way. And I'm really happy to have you here tonight, James. Hello. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you, Barry. Um, I, I thought my opinions were always quite mellow. Um, I, I thought I'd start with an interesting research piece which was done uh, actually by Monocle magazine uh, on Australia, and it looked at this very issue of raising children in the city or um, in a uh, suburban context. And the research showed that people in the suburbs were more likely to vote for Scott Morrison and uh, were also less likely to be attractive than people in Fitzroy. And so I therefore came to the conclusion that it was appropriate to uh, raise children uh, in the inner city. And that's, that's my kind of core belief on this. Um, but uh, humour, humour aside, because I made that up, and I appreciate your dig at Monocle magazine. Um, humour aside, I, 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 um, I guess, come to this with um, 
uh, a couple of uh, things. One is um, I'm not the uh, youngest person here, uh, but I um, have two teenage children. So I've had a very recent experience of raising children uh, in various environments. So uh, my theory is that gives me a unique uh, perspective on the challenge of raising children. Uh, and then I also have, I guess, the professional lens of working in real estate development uh, where we work uh, predominantly in the inner north and um, create, you know, our main project at the moment is a, a multi-stage precinct which brings together infrastructure like uh, transport, bike paths, public gardens, public sculpture into a, a place with the uh, view to create, um, I guess, quality urban living for people. I wouldn't necessarily call it affordable. And then my other main professional thing is Smiling Mind, which is focused on uh, mental health and well-being, particularly for young people. So they're things I'm incredibly passionate about. Uh, but that's where I kind of divert from the polarised situation we're looking at, because uh, my children actually half grew up in a rural environment and then half in a urban environment. And rather than advocating purely for the uh, city living, I'm actually uh, departing from my team members, uh, being a little bit treacherous, and advocating for uh, a kind of split model. And um, the split model is, uh, doesn't, involve, doesn't involve the suburbs at all, because that's bad, but uh, it involves uh, growing up in the country in the first instance, which uh, our children did until the age of 13. And that is a wonderful thing because uh, they first and foremost didn't have a lot of the materialism which goes with growing up in the city. They had nature brought into their way, in, into their life in a way which either living in the city or living in the suburbs you don't get. So for them, they would wake up in the morning and they'd walk outside and there were horses, there was a vegetable garden, there were birds, there were ducks. And it just gave them, I think, a huge appreciation for nature, which then sticks with them for the rest of their life. Um, I personally feel that, uh, you know, being surrounded uh, by nature and uh, less built form at an early stage has an impact um, on people's, I guess, longer-term resilience. I, I would like to say that that's also supported by the same research from Monocle magazine. Um, they or might have been The Economist, I'm not sure. The... Um, they actually grew up in a beautiful environment which I think in a lot of ways protected them uh, from a lot of the negatives which go with the city. But when they got to a point, particularly teenage years, they, they craved something which I don't think they would have got in a rural environment and I certainly don't think they would have got in a suburban environment and they very much wanted to be in a place where the things which were important to them were highly accessible. And uh, like Joe, uh, I live in Fitzroy. I'm about to move to East Melbourne. My children regard East Melbourne as the suburbs. Uh, they tell me it's not near public transport and it's in the middle of nowhere. But that's, um, that's kind of their outlook. I'm trying to explain otherwise. Um, and what's important to them in the city, and this is interesting just in terms of comments from before, the, the access to, I guess, cultural amenity, uh, the access to... Uh, open space and nature, but with other people in it. Uh, the ability to actually have those incidental connections, so walking down the street, running into friends. Uh, my son for many years was an avid skateboarder and that, um, you know, he built up a huge community of people, which I think in a uh, suburban environment he would not have, and in a rural environment you obviously can't skateboard down a dirt road, so that wouldn't have worked. And th th he's, he's actually... Um, dropped skateboards and picked up um, 
spray paint cans. So he's um, at night time out on building sites, which kind of pisses me off, it fucks me off a bit, but he, 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 he does this and um, so he goes out at night and he spray paints stuff and uh, he couldn't do that if he was in a rural environment <laughs> or a suburban environment. So it's, 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 it's very important to him. And uh, there are other things which are important to teenagers um, which uh, I don't think they'd find so readily in the suburbs. You know, I had, um, I had a strange incident about... Um, it was, it's funny, I mean, I, maybe it could happen in the suburbs. My daughter was having a party and they were drinking. And I, I, I kind of thought, right, you know, 15, 16, they're going to drink. I'm going to live with this. And, but I went in and I said, right, guys, you've got to chill on the drinking. You know, and, and there was a kid coming up the stairs and he didn't know that there was a parent there giving a lecture. And he heard someone talking about drinking. And he walked in the room and he said, I'm not drinking. And he pulled out a bong. Right, <laughs> and and I thought this is a unique thing that would not happen. <laughs> Can I just say that would not happen in the suburbs, and it wouldn't happen in a rural environment. It would be ice, and that's not good. <laughs> and so, in summary, uh, right on time. In summary, I advocate for a model which combines both the rural and the city. So thank you. Just as always. <laughs> All right. To wrap this up for the Burbs, um, Stephen Troy is an architect and a sustainability expert. Um, we've worked alongside Stephen on a project that's helped redefine one of Melbourne's suburbs, which is Burwood Brickworks. Um, it was his fastidious attention to detail and kind of commitment to the cause that's made it a really remarkable place. So we're really happy to have you along. He told me he hates public speaking as well. So be gentle. <laughs> Thanks, Barry, Your Honour, members of the jury. Um, clearly, I'm from the suburbs, um, not just the suburbs, but the ghetto. I grew up in a ghetto um, where you wouldn't just be egged in the street, you'd be set alight. Um, and I think I'm only here because um, I'm here to meet a diversity quota. Anyway, I'm dressed like this because um, I had to jog here. I um, lost my driving licence in an incident, and I'm using my phone because I don't have access to a printer. Anyway, the quote, the suburbs are no place to raise a child. Well, my mum's from uh, the Caribbean and my dad's from Hong Kong, so I know both cities and suburbs. But this quote, the suburbs are no place to raise a child, um, and I don't have any children that I know of. The quote is clearly wrong, and this is why I haven't written anything, so I'm just going to rebut everything that's been said before. So, <laughs> Harriet, <laughs> I know you're 18, and I should behave. Is your mum here? No, she's probably at the NGV collecting an award. Of course she is. Um, 11 different houses um, that you called home um, in your young years. I had 11 different jobs by the time I was 18. You say no distinguishing between city and the suburbs. Well, in, um, you know, King Henry VIII actually defined any city as a place that had a cathedral. Just thought I'd teach you that. And um, I spoke with someone who worked... Um, at IKEA, not for IKEA, but at IKEA, and they said the, different, the edge between the city and the suburb is wherever there's an IKEA, and that's true from anywhere around the world. You can have that. So you talk about proximity to galleries, restaurants, cafes, while simultaneously having a sanctuary. This is, um, this is class segregation, people. Um, cities used to be the place in the middle of the cities where you'd have manufacturing, right? Industrial workers, 
horrible place to live. Therefore, the ones who could afford it would move out and retreat to the exclusive suburbs. They wanted a place to protect themselves from the people that they needed as labor, but didn't actually want to be close to. Um, there was also a, a sense of kind of ev evangelicalism, actually. You know, home was the central place for um, revival. And so cities at that time, 50 years ago, in some, some cases, seen as places of corruption, um, people would retreat in, into the countryside because that's a place of moral refuge. And, of course, cleanliness, um, also in line with evangelical values, um, cleanliness was seen as kind of a godliness. So cities, obviously, at that time, horrible places with rubbish and manure in the streets, soot when you were cleaning chimneys. Chimneys are these things where you've got... You know, I know you know what a chimney is, but it's... it's there was coal. Don't worry. I haven't got time for this. Um, anyway, the cities were, were a place of... were breeding grounds for... Um, disease and misconduct, and the suburbs at that time were a hygienic alternative. Um, but luckily, industry and religion has now moved away from the cities, so the affluent people can now move back, and that is what has happened. Do I need to go on? How, when's this bell going off? I'll keep going. Matthew, so you say suburbs are lonely places. Okay, loneliness is important. Suburbs are lonely places. There was not really the link made there, but I will say that the city is the place to be utterly anonymous. I know people who actually moved to the city to be anonymous. You know, if you want to borrow sugar, you go to your neighbor and you ask them for sugar, but you don't have to in the city because there's coals downstairs. And, um, I, you know, I've, I've started asking my neighbors, you know, for sugar, even though I don't even need it, um, just, just to have that sort of interaction. You also say cities are more diverse places. Um, well, maybe not the cities of the future that face this horrible affordability crisis. So... You know, people in the cities who feel that they're diverse, they're in the middle of the city or those inner city suburbs, the inner city, you know, there's a kind of snobbery towards suburbia, actually, because that's a really good place to remove yourself from the working class and the immigrant populations. It's really good to go and get, go out to Footscray and get something to eat, but then you don't want to live there, you come back. And James, Monocle magazine. <laughs> what the fuck's a monocle? So the... Um, <laughs> So the suburbs are no place to raise a child. Um, look, most absolute quotes are wrong, and this one is wrong. And I know everyone here already agrees, because the, the suburbs are no place to raise a child. This is clearly wrong. Some suburbs are not a good place to raise some children. And I think um, kind of place is the only key thing, the key word in that sentence, because non-places are no place to raise anyone, an adult or a child. So when I'm not from the suburbs, I actually work in architecture and evolutionary psychology. And there are two things that people love. One, well, there are many more things, but at the heart of this conversation, one is socialization, and the other are well-defined spaces. So these two things, they're traits that suburbia often lacks, but not necessarily the suburbs. Thank you. Stephen brings the mean. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, George Saunders was out in Australia recently and he was saying that 
um, like a measure of what makes a good society is how we can actually conscientiously and respectfully object to others. And we've really kind of lost that as an art. And I'm not sure if I said it was respectful, verging on. But I really love that you, you put it out there. And I think, um, you know, we need, to, we need to cast a vote as to who the winning side might be. But it might be more useful to take some questions and comments from people first before we do that to allow our um, debaters to defend themselves. So it's a small pavilion and I'm not sure that you'll need a microphone anyway. Um, but if anyone's got something they'd like to add, ask. Um, it's a generous thing to do, to almost kind of say thank you to these people for putting in effort anyway. Um, who would like to say something? Come on, Melbourne. <laughs> you can't take it back. <laughs> um, as mean as Stephen was, and he really was, and I know that he's not really mean, as mean as he was, I think, I think that final comment, sub suburban versus suburbia, mm. um, is, is a really interesting comment to explore mm. because I think... At the end of the day, the qualities uh, that we enjoy in any place that we love can be translated into most places in some form or another. And in fact, a blend of what's great about suburbia or what's great about the city can occur anywhere mm. with the right sort of foresight and understanding. Mm. So I think, I think Stephen's final comment was actually the really telling mm. point. I, I kind of think that... I'm looking. I'm looking at the middle of the, uh, um, the sort of the team for the city. I think there was there was really a statement being made there about blurring the edges, mm. um, but um, there are things that the city can't offer that that are present in suburbs and vice versa. And what we're trying to do in planning and design these days is actually blur those edges. Mm. What we see is not what we get. What we plan for is what we get. Mm eventually. And we're probably 10 years behind, this discussion's probably 10 years behind what will actually land on the ground in the next decade. And mm. there's wonderful stuff mm. being planned and designed right now that I think starts to address the problems we're talking about. So mm. that's my comment. I yeah. like Stephen for president. I like him. <laughs> <laughs> but not Trump. <laughs> Great. Uh, yes, hang on, we'll bring you a mic. Hello. Um, I have a question for everybody here who knows more about this than I do. Um, as we talk about the gentrification of suburbs, um, in a, often in a bad way, but often as the one committing it as well, and I'm just interested in how you can respectfully maintain an area, like you were talking about, Footscray, like mm. without losing what makes it magic, like yeah. like keeping prices down. And why don't we do that in Australia, like other countries do? Yeah, sure. Like I mean, James or Rachel might want to take the the lead on that one. James, you're an agent of gentrification. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a word that has a real stink to it, uh, but it's not necessarily bad. Um, it's a question of how it's a addressed, how it's done sensitively, I guess, is your point. So, uh, James, I'd really actually like to have your opinion on that. Hello. Yeah. Um, uh, I actually think it's really extremely difficult to do it um, 
without causing a lot of harm, i.e. gentrification, and it's incredibly difficult to control, is my view as well, um, particularly when it comes to residential development because it, it's ultimately driven by market forces in terms of land and construction and the cost of debt and a whole lot of quite boring economic things. Um, and there is... Um, you know, to a certain extent, policy from a government perspective can impact it. And there's quite an interesting thing, um, you know, all jokes aside, in terms of the city of Yarra, there's a project which I'm um, on the board of, Contemporary Arts Precincts, which is the old Collingwood TAFE site. And, uh, um, you know, that's 6,500 square metres of space for uh, the arts. And we, we did it effectively to create um, affordable uh, art space in the city of Yarra to... Uh, combat gentrification because so many of the arts organisations, you know, like Gertrude Street, Contemporary, etc., had had to move out. So I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's one-off um, initiatives which can impact gentrification, but to a certain extent uh, there's an inevitability to it which um, one needs to kind of live with, I guess, which is a bit pessimistic. What about in cities like Berlin where they actually stop rent? You have to... Yeah, I mean, I bet... Uh, you, you, Sorry, I did every, everyone hear that? Do you want me yeah. to just... So the, the notion the question of, was... Yeah. Oh, sorry, you, you yeah, the notion of rent control, which is something which uh, I think is done in Berlin and was previously done in Manhattan with some success. I had a rent-controlled apartment in Manhattan in the early 90s. It was great. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you can do it. It's got problems on it in, in kind of like a lot of... Um, this is where the right wing side of me comes out. Uh, a, a lot of interventions like that have flow-on effects elsewhere, which are you know hard to manage. But it's something which could be looked at. I do think Berlin's got a highly unusual property market in terms of actually what drives um, affordability there. And it's you know people in Berlin think it's expensive. It's incredibly inexpensive compared to the rest of Europe. Do, yeah. Sorry you, if I didn't answer the question. No, you did. Um, I wouldn't mind actually handing it over to Rachel a little bit because. Um, our observations on gentrification, your microphone's everywhere, um, are that quite, I mean, gentrification does to some extent seem inevitable, and I agree with James, it's driven by a lot of market forces that can't necessarily be kind of pushed back. So change will happen. And the question is, is it going to be a good change or bad change? And more often than not, the really bad gentrification occurs because there wasn't a point in time where the developer or the government even really knew what was important to the community. And a lot of that comes down to the way that we actually engage with the community. We call it community engagement and it's really hostile and it's in an awful white room and a developer will say, here's the building we want to create. What do you guys think of it? And everyone hates it and they shouldn't really be criticising its design anyway because that's not what the conversation should be around. So um, Malonglo have been doing this really interesting work which they call community participation, which is an interesting nuance and I think it's a lot more softer. And I think it might be really good, sorry, uh, if, if you explain a little bit about what you did in Derry Road and how that was like a lovely start to understand what's important to people in the first place so that, yes, Derry Road's going to change, but at least you're doing it with the important kind of values and beliefs in mind. Yeah, of course. Um, I was just going to say as well, I think that gentrification can be a really positive thing as long as it happens at a pace where the people already in that place can also stand to benefit from it. And um, that is, as James was saying, really, really difficult to achieve. But from a private property developer's perspective, and this is what my role involves a lot with Malonglo, is contributing to our public participation efforts um, in the project uh, Dairy Road, which I wasn't so much involved with, but I am involved with our project in Collingwood, Rupert Street, which is um, 
going to be a mixed-use building of, tw of 12 storeys um, of all different types of uh, businesses. Uh, it's a commercial building, it's not residential, but we're really trying to give something to the neighbourhood that the neighbourhood wants, and that is very challenging prospect, but something that has been informed by a, about two-year program of, I guess, community engagement. I really hate this word community, but it's it's hard to get a, get around it. It's about speaking to people in the neighbourhood and trying our best through many different mechanisms. No one mechanism will be the will work. Um, you need multiple ways of of asking questions and listening to people, whether that's one-on-one -on -one engagement or working group discussions or um, events where people can kind of in a more passive way come along and learn something about the project or exhibitions or the Melbourne Design Week program that we do every year, which kind of interrogates deeply a theme that is relating to some of our projects, um, which Barry mentioned before, we're bringing up Francesco Carreri, um, who's an Italian author and artist who his whole career has been around walking as a design methodology. And that's something that's really important to us because this Dairy Road project that we're doing in Canberra is a precinct where we hope it will be, um, uh, walkability will be at the forefront of that precinct, but also this project in, in Melbourne, um, Rupert Street, we hope that will be a, a walkable building, a building that you'll enjoy traversing. So. I guess it's it's really layered the way that you um, do that community engagement, um, but it's it's a huge investment. Not most developers don't do that because it costs a lot of money, but it, and it takes a lot of time and it takes people with different skill sets. Who I, I mean, I'm not trained in any sort of property or architecture um, construction. That's not my background, but it's involving different types of voices in the process. That's a good thing. I think yeah, it's a good thing that you're not trained in architecture or urban planning or anything. It's because when, like you, the example that you use, that you hold up a building and say, what do you think? Yeah. It's like a done deal that you're trying to convert people into mm. your way of thinking instead of saying, what are the outcomes that we want? We want better mental and physical health. We want better built environments, but really it's the outcomes for humans that we want. And we're using the built environment to get those outcomes. And so you really need to start with the outcomes instead yeah. of the built environment. And having real conversations with people instead of community engagement, even those jargon terms, it's like, it, it, it becomes marketing spiel. It, it's it's um, untrustworthy. And so therefore it doesn't, it shuts down honest conversations about these things. Although I think it, you know, the whole, topic of the debate when I was sitting there thinking, I think, what is it really about? It's how to grow happy humans? How yeah. do we grow good people? What What's important to being a good, healthy person? Mm. And it's not always the built environment. Mm. It certainly has a huge impact. But yeah, if we started with growing healthy humans, that's why walkability works. Yeah. Can I just add to that? Yeah. I've experienced death of a culture and I worked at Peter Mac in the old, has anyone been to the old Peter Mac? It was scungy and it was dark. But it was like a pit stop. Like you, you could see everyone and you'd say, right, radiologists, I need you. Right, psychologists, I need you. Like a, it was awful, but it was amazing. And then we walked, 6,000 staff, we did this walk from the old Peter Mac to the new Peter Mac. Now, the new Peter Mac's winning all these awards. It's gorgeous. But the culture started to die. And there's inevitability of death of culture, of death of vibe, of death of feeling. And we had lots of people to come and run a hideous workshop with all these post-it notes to try and work through shit. In the end, they should have helped us with grief. Yeah. They should have helped us with loss yeah. because these 
places can't contain spirit forever and spirit dies. So it's actually helping people to grieve. We don't have change fatigue, we've got loss fatigue, especially in healthcare. So it's helping people with loss through that. And that was what was missing in that Peter Mac experience. When you walked into that amazing building that's, you know, snatching trophies, yet Peter McCallum Cancer Hospital is very different from what it is uh, used to be, for those of you that remember it. Um, another question from anyone? Oh, Bob. Another good-looking man up the back. Another bald guy with a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, the best kind of bald guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess you guys have been talking, um, at the last three little uh, microphone holds, have been talking about places that exist already and how do we adapt to those. When I came here tonight, I thought it was going to be more of a talk towards the new suburbs as places that are currently just a grassland or a field. Mm. Um, and I guess maybe the question's towards someone like James, who's, who's chosen a... Uh, a career that is involved with um, evolving places. I guess, how do you how do you approach these suburbs that don't exist? Like, how do you create worlds and, and start? As Joe mentioned, you're starting with the ambition to get to the design. Mm. How do you do that for an audience that doesn't yet exist? Mm. And how can you do it better than the, uh, the pointy shoot? sort of belt-adjusting, handshake-crushing developers that are out there who are, yeah. are doing it to sell a product that can be repeated to find the economy of scale mm. to make these places. And I guess, James, do you have any experience yeah. you would have been in that world? Do you think there's a culture that can change in order for us to follow ambition yeah. rather than a repetition of form? Hello, yeah. Um, I actually think that that's a fascinating question because I, I think there are lots of aspects of uh, particularly residential real estate development which um, are the outcome of the culture of the industry. And it is, um, and I'm highly cynical to the industry and it's a kind of male-dominated, herd-like, firm handshaking, um, you know, uh, it, things are, are binary. You're either creative or you're commercial. Uh, and I, I don't see the world like that at all. But I, I, I think um, slowly there's, um, there's a shift in the industry where you're seeing, um, you know, I'd like to say developers like Neometro, like Jeff and myself and Lockie, like um, Milieu, uh, like a handful of others who actually do care and their internal culture is one of actually creating positive... Um, places for people to live. There, there is a whole kind of plethora of, um, you know, I'd say posturing, um, you know, the uh, affordable luxury, you know, I mean, I, I don't need to reel off the developers' names except, you know, they're a kind of pretty shitty culture and that's something which I think over time will change. Um, I, I do think driving that change needs to come from consumers who actually become... Um, articulate what they want and then act, you know, realistically in terms of decisions around apartment buying and other forms of residential property and, and therefore dictate the market and that will drive, you know, hopefully a cultural change. Um, the other thing I want to do, I want to give uh, everyone Simon Griffin's number, uh, Simon Griffiths, at, uh, who gives a crap, so they can get their toilet paper. <laughs> so um, Simon's number, Barry suggests this, is 0418... <laughs> Fuck, no, it's not really. I'm not going to do that. But I thought it was funny. It was Barry's joke. <laughs> um, I wouldn't mind Stephen actually answering that question as well because um, 
Burwood Brickworks is a pretty radically new idea for a neighbourhood, which, I mean, it was a suburb that could have been a blamange, unremarkable suburb for eternity. And you guys chose to design a particular way and spend a lot of money on sustainability. And you do that to attract an audience that are not there. So there must have been some kind of hypothesizing about what's going to be important to people in the long term and therefore how do we build a product and a service that's actually going to meet their, their values. So how did you go about the process of kind of um, arriving at that radical idea? I thought I'd done enough to not have to use the microphone again. So the, um, so the, that particular development as an example is one where I think developers are starting to realize they don't create community. Like you see that all the time, marketing. We're creating a community. We cre you can't create a community. You create some conditions that might more or, or less likely facilitate the ability for someone else within that space to be there. And so, um, so I think the suburbia, the idea of suburbia is still happening, but its peak has actually gone. It's been and gone. Like we're not going to see this kind of suburbia going forward long term at all. And it's not because developers care more. It's because they now realize that um, slowly but surely the residential market, the people, cultural shift is actually happening. And so if you want to stay successful in that space, um, you have to understand that you can't actually keep delivering the cookie cutter homes over and over again. Some will do that, um, you know, race to the bottom. I mean, the, you know, the risk about the race to the bottom is you might actually win it. Yeah. Um, so... With this particular development, it was actually not going, we're going to do a green wall or we... It was looking at what are the conditions that make people want to be in a place and break that down space by space by space by space. Even if it's outdoors, imagine those outdoor spaces are rooms. And um, what do people actually like? They like um, certain size areas, a place for refuge. They might like a place to see far into the distance. They might like a place with strong light. They might like a place that has diffused light and better shadow. And so providing all of those through the built environment as a vehicle gives people the opportunity to actually go to those places. There's still going to be, you know, your everyday um, products, which I think is a horrible word that should never be used to describe someone's home, but it is. Um, but the spaces between the products are really, they're, they're changing. And... Um, it's either because people care a little bit more or they can't get away with what they've been doing in the past. What we've done for that project is to be, I think, well ahead of the curve. Um, and the, the intent was to just raise the bar really, really high and just see what other people would do. And I'm really sorry to the other two. Honestly, the whole thing was just in jest. It wasn't actually. I love Ingrid, yeah. Uh, so my question's directed at Harriet. Uh, as someone who is at an age where they can choose to reside in the suburbs or the urban space of the city, and knowing how mean the product of the suburbs can be, <laughs> um, I'm really interested to hear where Harriet would choose to live. Um, well, right now, housing is really expensive. So I'm still living at home. Um, and I honestly intend to stay where I have, where I've stayed the last eight years um, for the next few until I can save up enough money. And then my next plan would actually be to move into the city, um, 
hopefully in a share house. Um, yeah, in a sort of inner city suburb, maybe somewhere near Carlton or something like that. I think that's, yeah, that's what I do. I was really interested you were describing um, like the, the look and the feel of the city. Um, so you were talking about it being green and having a natural feel. Um, could you describe the, like the type of people you want to live around as well? Like what is it a, like in the character of people or the culture of a community which you find appealing? Um, I think it's hard to answer that question because there's not really one type. Yeah, there's no one type of person that I'd like to live around. I'd rather, I'd, I just would love to have the diversity mm. that honestly we already have so much of in the city. I just, yeah, different types of people, different demographics, even different ages, just everyone. I think that's what I would find the most interesting. Yeah, I, Matthew, I think there's something really beautiful in that sentiment because, again, like another way in which I think millennials and younger are mischaracterized is this idea that they just want to be around people like themselves. But as a generation, they seem to have like a much bigger appetite than Gen Xs or whoever it might be to live with people of all different ages and the kind of inclusive living that you're talking about and advocating for is not some like charity for them, but it's a desirable thing that they, they want to do. And I, I think that really, you know, there is no hope beyond the kids and the kids seem pretty okay. Yeah, regardless of whether they're suburban or, or city kids. Yeah. So maybe uh, we'll wrap this up with a, with a vote. Um, so, I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous vote in the end, isn't it? Um, because it seems like the biggest point that was made was that it doesn't really matter whether you live in the suburbs or the city, what does matter is that there's a quality of place. And that place has a quality insofar as it responds to human beings. Not a design outcome, it's a, it's a personal outcome. But because I like winners and losers, I think we, we need to choose favourites here. We can't sit on the fence. So, um, you're voting for the performance of the team. Even if you would rather live in the suburbs, if you think the city people were better, you vote for them and so on. So, all those in favour of the city, please raise your hand. Your head counting, Simon. Gotcha, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like... And all those in favour of the Burbs? Oh, even I can do that. I think the Burbs won. What's it, what are the numbers? What are the numbers? 23 to 34. Well done. Thank you, Rain Man. It's like a democratic caucus. No one really knows who won. Um, okay, so we could wind this up because it's getting cold and it's late. Um, I just wanted to thank a few people. Um, obviously, my right angle team, but particularly Sam Davison, our senior editor, who is sadly but excitingly on a his way. There he is, on his way. Um, he's just done such great work. Um, come up with like limitless good ideas and so much energy for the improvement of the cities that he's worked on. So thank you, Sam, specifically for this. I'd like to thank our fierce and gentle debaters. I don't know why I looked at you when I said fierce. <laughs> um, for giving up your time. And I'd really like to thank you guys as well. Um, I guess there's just some parting words. Uh, it's so easy to have an opinion, really. You know, like we live in an age where I think we've convinced ourselves that having an opinion is the thing. But it's actually doing something that counts, okay? And uh, what really saddens me about our cities is 
we're just stuck in the situation where whenever there is a debate, formal or informal, about what could happen or what should happen, it's always the naysayers that mobilize. You know, it's the squeaky wheels. And so we have these really stunted, crippled cities. And so having you guys here tonight in the cold listening to this um, is heartening for me because it shows that we do have people that are genuinely interested and can be proactively involved. So thank you very much for coming down. And um, goodbye. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.